a lot of y'all from the uh, mic up here this week. Have y'all noticed that? <laughs> Ever since I've lived in California for a year, I'm originally from Alabama. Um, and I never noticed Luke 10. I never noticed how much I say y'all until I started living around everyone who doesn't say it. And uh, I was preaching at our church in Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. I mean, it's just California. And I said, fixin' to during a sermon. Are y'all familiar with the fixin' to? I'm about to do something. I'm fixin' to do something. Um, The other one they busted me on, too, is Mike Could. Are y'all familiar with Mike Could? I might be able to do something. I might could do that. Uh, Anyways, learning a lot about the way I speak. Uh, All right, who's the person that climbed the the mountain? What's your name? and a half hours. I don't know. So now she's a better athlete than all of us, and she's humbler than all of us. So real uplifting week for the rest of us. I'm just kidding. I hope I don't embarrass you. A little bit more about me. Uh, I I thought I'd share a little bit with y'all about my call to ministry before we get started, just so you get to know who I am. Um, I went to Vanderbilt University, loved it, went there for four years. Uh, My senior year, uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do, uh, no dream, no vision, no nothing. My older brother was at seminary, and he and I are great friends, and I just thought, I'll go to seminary with him. That was literally it. It wasn't like this transcendent burning bush. It wasn't even like, I want to preach or anything like that. It was like, my older brother's there, I want to go with him. Fortunately, my RUF campus minister got a hold of me, and he's like, whoa, that's not, that's not exactly how called ministries normally happen. It's not all bad, but... Um, he said, why don't you go do the REF internship first as a kind of way to test and see if you want to do ministry, which is a great uh, piece of advice, an instrumental piece of advice. Is how I met my wife. It was how I was confirmed and really kind of received a call to ministry for the first time. And so I was called and I did the REF internship at the University of Tennessee, um, where I met Ryan Moore for the first time. We became good friends. While I was there, I met my wife. She was the other intern. We started dating as interns, got married on staff together, which was a blast. I did the internship. The internship is two years long. And at the end of my second year, the Tennessee campus minister was moving on to a new position, and they didn't have a campus minister. And so one day I got this call from the campus minister. His name was John. John called me and said, hey, I want you to come play golf with me and Joey. Joey was the guy who's the head of the committee that oversees RUF in Tennessee. So John was moving on to his new job. They didn't know who the campus minister was going to be next year at Tennessee. John and Joey was in charge of choosing the next campus minister. They asked me to go play golf. I had no idea what was going on. We're standing on the first tee box. I don't play golf. I hate it. It's just not me. But anyways, we're standing on the first tee box. I'm trying not to look awkward, and I'm starting to count what it's going to cost me to play golf when I consider, like, the greens fees, the cart, and then I literally am like, Okay, if I lose nine balls, like how much is that? I'm I'm figuring out my tab. And this is the conversation. This is the really, honestly, they were not joking. This is the conversation that took place in that first tee box. I'll never forget it. They said, Britton, we need something. uh, We need to ask you a huge favor. It really is something that, a way we need you to serve RUF. And we'd like you to consider it. And they said, you're not, you haven't been to seminary. You're not a pastor. Um, 
but would you consider staying at the University of Tennessee for an additional year uh, and be on staff and just hold the ministry together until we get the pastor that we're calling because he can't come for a year? So they're just asking me two years out of college to function like an RUF campus minister without being an RUF campus minister. And that's what they said. And then this is what they said next, and they were not joking. And if you meet my wife, and it would be awesome if y'all did, you would understand why they said this. They said, we want you to know we have very low expectations for you. Uh, I'm not kidding. We don't think you can do this job. We think your wife can, so we're asking you to stick around so she'll be here. Hey, the funny thing is when you get married, you're like, I think, I think I feel more complimented because you're so fired up about their observations about your wife. Anyways, that was the beginning of my call to ministry. It was probably a good call. It was probably what I needed to hear. It was definitely what I needed to hear at that time. Um, and it, it might even still be the case. Anyways, um, we're looking at Luke 10. We're going to look at just a very brief passage. And tonight what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the joy of service. That there's delight in it. Even there's delight even in entering into other people's nightmares. And uh, the myth that I want to expose is this. That servant leadership is exciting and it's delightful and it's joyful because of what you do and how big you do it. That if you have a big impact for Jesus, man, that's the delight of ministry. That's the delight of servant leadership. That's the delight of service. That's the myth I want to expose that you've got to figure out what you do and then you've got to do it big for Jesus. And that is where the richness and the joy of service is. And what we're going to look at tonight is that the joy of service isn't, quite, isn't something quite different from that. We're going to look at a very short passage, Luke 10, verse 17 through 20. Here's what's happening. And earlier in Luke 10, Jesus calls 72 guys together and he sends them out to go preach the gospel in all these villages in the ancient Near East. And they come back. And this is their short-term mission trip debriefing. That's what these verses are. So we're going to look at those, and we're going to look at what the joy of service really is. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Here's where we're camping out for the night. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we consider this, as we consider how we enter into your service, I pray that we would begin to be fascinated with you and not as fascinated with all the amazing things that we want to try to do and aren't really good at doing for you. I pray that we would find that what drives us, what is delightful to us, is you, Jesus, and not all the different ways that we're trying to become something amazing for you. Forgive us for the religious narcissism that drives our spiritual lives. Your God, teach us from your text now. In your name we pray. Amen. One way to ask this question, I'm not going to ask this question. One way to ask 
um, who are all the Christians in the room, another way to ask it would be to say, how many of y'all have seen The Princess Bride? Okay, now I kind of understand our audience a little bit. Um, The Princess Bride, maybe we might say, is the high point of American art in the 20th century. Okay. Um, Princess Bride's got a lot of gospel illustrations, but there's one awesome in there. To give you the story, and I'm really just going to talk about the setup of the story. In the beginning of the story, there's this girl who lives on a farm. Her name's Buttercup. And there's a farm boy named Wesley. And Buttercup loves to pester the farm boy. And he just calls him farm boy. And, and if you, you need to read The Princess Bride, by the way. If you've seen the movie, read the book. It'll change your life. Um, and in and the book, it talks about, but also in the movie, nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. And he goes through this litany of all these demeaning tasks that she loves to give the farm boy. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle until I can see my face shining in it. Farm boy, plow the field. Farm boy, clean the stall. And she gives him all these demeaning tasks over and over and over again. And if you've seen the movie, you know he responds the same way every single time. What does he say? As you wish. As you wish, right? As you wish. As you wish. As you wish. That's all he ever said to her. Farm boy, fill these with water, please. As you wish. And what happens, and it's really beautiful, what happens is slowly over time, what she realizes is when he's saying, as you wish, what he's really saying is, I love you. I love you. I love you. And what I want us to look at tonight and consider about service of the Lord tonight, and this is the main point, what, what really made Wesley's service, right? What made it a delight, what was the heart and the power and the delight and the substance of his service was not... How exciting and big it was, right? It was demeaning and it was small. No, the delight of his service was the person he was doing it for, right? He did tons of demeaning things, and he didn't care how demeaning they were. They were small. They were minute. And he was willing to get his hands dirty, be thought little of, because the joy and the delight of his service was not and how great a thing he could do for Buttercup, The joy in the light of his service was just in Buttercup herself, right? This is is how you're feeling this week, and I feel this way all the time, and I know you feel this way all the time. You walk in, and you're finding out, you're looking at people in this room. You're looking at peers. You're looking at leaders, whoever it is, and you're thinking, I need to be more like these people I see around me, right? We're measuring. We're comparing, and you're conjuring a picture in your mind, and you're asking questions of the new you that you need to work on to become, right? Who am I supposed to become? The new things that that you need to do, the things you need to give up, the radical changes that you need to make. And and some of that's okay. It's not all bad. Struggle with that. But what Ryan and I together are dying for you to see this week is that the, the key to service is getting near, resting in, the love of Jesus. See, you, we're all the same. We're all thinking, here's what Ryan and I are about to do in two weeks. We're about to go hang out with 130 other RF campus ministers, and we're about to hear the amazing things they've done. And what Ryan and I are very tempted to do, and we have to pray for each other when we do this, is look at all of them and say, for me to be a servant of God, I've got to start acting like these other people because they're doing amazing things that I can't do. And what we're saying is, no, no, no. The delight, the joy, the power, the motive of service is in knowing Jesus. 
It's in knowing that your name is written in heaven. It's not in having a big impact. It's actually not in having a big impact. Listen to the text. That's our first point. The joy of service is not in how big and glamorous the results of whatever it is you try to do are. The joy is in knowing the king you serve. The 72 were sent out. Short-term missionary journey. They're not building houses. They're not playing soccer with orphans. They're not teaching vacation Bible schools. All those things are fine. They are preaching powerfully in town squares. They're probably healing people. They're casting out demons. Right? If we had YouTube, these videos would explode across YouTube, right? And Jesus is not dismissive of this. He's like, I know. I saw it. Y'all, Satan's kingdom is crumbling. Jesus knows it. He sees it. I saw Satan falling. And if you're one of those 72, how do you not get intoxicated by this? How do you not get intoxicated by this? If somebody came to your church for the missions conference week and showed videos of them healing people and casting out demons, we wouldn't even know what to do. Like, everybody, just people throw money at them. I mean, you'd be crazy. Like, I need to get some videos of me casting out demons. That's how I'm going to get y'all support R.F. Stanford. But we... We wouldn't know how to respond. It'd be utterly shocking. We'd be excited. We'd be terrified. It'd be glorious. And they're responding absolutely the way any of us would respond. It's totally natural. Jesus, powerful things are happening when we're preaching the gospel. We're casting out demons. We have authority over the spirit world, right? How frustrating is Jesus' response? Jesus said, "That's, that's good, but don't rejoice in this too much. How frustrating is that? To give your report about really good gospel ministry, Jesus recognizes, don't hear what I'm not saying, big impact for Jesus is still a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Jesus recognizes it's a good thing. And yet his response is, yeah, but don't rejoice in this. How do you not rejoice in this? Now, why would he do that? Here's why. Because he knows we can very easily become enamored with and carried away with doing big, flashy, dramatic, even good stuff for Jesus. If, if Ryan cast out demons this week and healed people and Ryan preached Christ beautifully, what would you talk about next week with your friends? talk about casting out demons i would too i'd be like oh yeah, yeah he preached some but y'all the demon stuff was crazy you know <laughs> jesus actually knows that service itself can distract us from him the joy of service is not in the size of the impact you have or how radical it is the joy of service is in knowing him Jesus is not saying these are bad things. Some of y'all are going to have big impact. Some of y'all are going to have a small impact. Jesus is happy for all of it. The joy of service, though, is in knowing him. What he's saying is the joy of servant leadership is in knowing the security, the security of Jesus' love for you. And if the joy of service, if the excitement and the desire to make a big splash and to do something radical 
if that supersedes your delight and how much Jesus loves you, your service and your ministry gets warped and twisted. This is the difference. Y'all know this because you're like me. There are two students. All of us are the one student that I'm about to describe. There's the one student who loves the subject matter, right? We call these people nerds. These are like real nerds, not... You know, not the people that get high GPAs, but the people who, like, really love chemistry. They're, like, not even talking about their grades. They're talking about chemistry. And you're like, who are you people? You know? Okay, those are my students at Stanford. But the rest of us, we don't care about the substance of what we're studying. We care about our GPA. Right? We care about the observable results we produce, the substance of it. And, you know, that's kind of like, that's, that's kind of a corruption of education, isn't it? We don't really care about what we're studying. What we're aiming for is the observable, recordable results, because those make a splash. It's kind of like that. And see, service is not Christian service. It's not service for the, sin, for the sake of making a splash. It's service to the king, and it's his love for you that makes it a joy. I hate housework. That's my nightmare. The dishes are my nightmare. I'm convinced, I, I can't prove it from Scripture at this point, but I, maybe Jesus is telling me, I feel like it's just got to be true that in the new heavens and new earth, we all eat on paper plates. <laughs> Amen? Huh? The trash disappears. It, it actually, like, it's like we, we feed our trees with it and stuff like that, you know? And, um, now, the few times that I get up at 8.30 when the day's over, we're trying to get our girls to sleep... And I do the dishes. The few times that I do, do you know why I do it? Here's why you think I do it, but it's not true. You think I do it because I love Elizabeth. I I wish I could tell you that's why it was. Here's the reality, and let me tell you something. This is actually sweeter. I do it because she loves me. I do it because at 830, I'm like... This woman is tired because she's cleaned this house and she's cared for these children. She's washed my clothes. She's weeded the garden. You know what's getting me to wash the dishes and what makes it a delight? It's not me thinking like, I'm just going to love Elizabeth tonight. It's me thinking about her love for me. See, it's her love for me that gets me to the sink. If we're more fascinated with how big and dramatic and radical we try to make ourselves in serving the kingdom, if we're more fascinated with making a big impact than we are fascinated with the king, our service gets warped, it gets hijacked. You'll find that your service, this is one of the ways it gets warped, you'll start to think that your service is empty unless it's producing big things or dramatic things. You'll start to think like, ah, it's in good service because awesome things aren't happening. Because your happiness is not... And knowing the king, your happiness is producing and producing results. And you're thinking, like, there's, there's not payoff here yet. Cool things aren't happening. There are a number of students at Stanford this past spring, went on a mission trip, should go on mission trips. They came back, and they were fired up for Jesus. And what they thought is, and this is what they said, and I met with them, and we talked about it, and they said, we really want to have an impact for Jesus at Stanford. And there's a right way where they were renewed in their desire to see the mission of God and the good news go out at Stanford. And Stanford's a hard place to bring the gospel. And there's so much to commend about what they did. And so what they did is they just thought, we need to do evangelism, straight-up evangelism. Okay, I'm a pastor, and I'm terrified of one-on-one individual evangelism. If you feel terrified, that's okay. I'm terrified. Ryan's terrified. 
Anybody who tells you they're not terrified is just not telling the truth or like they understand the gospel 10,000 times better than the rest of us. But these students decide to do it. So they bake brownies and they knock on doors in their dorm. Like, yeah. I mean, okay, there's so much to commend about this. We're not going to discuss ministry methods. There's so much to commend about this. But here's what happened. Nothing happened. Mostly what they got was people thinking you're weird. There were some people who were at least polite enough to not blow them off in a minute or two, but actually like roll their eyes while they listened to this pre-rehearsed Jesus conversation, you know? What happened was nothing. And what happened for a lot of these Stanford students who were trying to have an impact is they started to get discouraged, right? Because nothing was happening. Because they want to have a big impact. And they start getting ready to boot and punt on this mission of having an impact on campus because they were more fascinated with doing something big and dramatic than they were with the love of their king. There's a lot of great things. I really commended them, but it happened. They were like, nothing big happened. And so there's no joy in this. And I'm quite frustrated with it. Our service gets hijacked if the purpose of our service is to do something big instead of the purpose of our service is really to delight in the king. You won't be able to withstand the times when your service doesn't do much because there are a lot of times when it doesn't. To some degree, their knowledge wasn't, their joy wasn't in the knowledge of Jesus or their love for them. Rather, what they want to do is they want to find joy in doing something big. Here's one of the scariest passages in the Bible that I'm not going to explain very much, and you'll really want me to. Ask your leaders about it later. I'm just going to scare you because I'm scared of it, and I really am. Here's Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Listen to this. This is what scares me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You did a lot of things, but you didn't know me. Depart from me. That's what Jesus says. Y'all want to explain that test? Ask your leaders about it later. It serves as a warning of saying, like, guess what? Big impact doesn't necessarily mean Christian service. Knowing Jesus means Christian service. A big dramatic show is not the mark of Christian service. It's resting in the love of Jesus. So you won't be able, if if you're fascinated with big things and radical things, you won't be able uh, to have any security or joy in your service when there's not big things and radical things happening. Secondly, you won't be able to appreciate the day of small things. And what I mean by that is the, the normal serving life. You see, the life of service, this is what we started to think maybe on Sunday night, but it's not true. And it's not really kind of understanding everything I was saying, but there's a lot of wrestling going. The life of service is not necessarily moving to Kenya and starting an orphanage. For some of you, it might be that. For some of you, you might start feel that pull. You should wrestle with it, and it might be pulling you. And you might be thinking that. Some of you might be called to it. But that's just one form of glorious service to the king. Have you ever met the missionary that makes you feel like your life is illegitimate because you're not doing what they're doing? Because you're not working at the orphanage in Kenya? Here's the reality. 
giving up your life to serve at a soup kitchen, in some ways, some of y'all do this, I don't want to belittle this, in some ways that's kind of easy. Yeah, people need to do it, some of y'all will do it. In some ways it's kind of easy. You know what's hard? Forgiving the friend that betrayed you. You know what's hard? Loving your parents day in, day out. You know what's hard? Caring about your siblings that you can't stand. You know what's hard? Building a real friendship with the outcasts in your grade, in your school, in your classes. Y'all, it's easier to volunteer at a soup kitchen than do any of those things. You should do both. I'm not demeaning working at the soup kitchen. I'm just saying stop thinking that hard and joyful Christian service is out there in radical places. Y'all, hard, much more difficult Christian service is right in front of us. My, my dad told me this uh, the months before my marriage. He says, Britton, would you take a bullet for Elizabeth? I said, without hesitation, absolutely. He says, that's great, but you're probably never going to have to do that. You're going to have to love Elizabeth day in and day out for decades. You're going to have to set aside your desire to watch TV in order to do the dishes and the laundry and the yard and take out the garbage so that she can rest at night. You're going to have to go to the grocery store when she's tired. You're going to have to wake up at 2 a.m. and change the diapers so that she can get some rest. You're going to have to, this is a hard one, this has really got me. You're going to have to not watch Alabama football sometimes and be with your family. I was like, I don't see the proof text for that one. (laughs) That is far more difficult than taking a bullet for her. Hey, some of y'all might take a bullet. Some of y'all, I want to commend, if you do some extreme things for Jesus, that's fine. Some of you might do something radical. Most of you are called to actually more difficult forms of service, and that is loving the people and serving the people around you and near you and before you and in the outcasts of the places you live, day in, day out, for weeks. Not congratulating yourself because you invited them out to lunch one time, but actually becoming friends with them over weeks and months and years. Getting along and serving your siblings. Whoa, that's hard. And that's the day of small things. And if you think serving Jesus is only big impact, you know what? You're probably not a pleasant person, and you're probably not a servant of Jesus around the people who are right in front of you. Who are your neighbor? Those are the ones you're called to first. In some ways, I wish Jesus would let me take a bullet for Elizabeth because that's so much easier. Some of y'all want to take a bullet for Jesus. Amen. But the extreme things, in some way, are far more easy than the mundane things. If your joy is in knowing the king, you'll begin to wrestle through the hard work of loving and serving the people right in front of you. A lot of them are even in this room. A lot of us are both trying to be servants and also objects of service. The command that Jesus has given us to love God and love your neighbor, you know who your neighbors are? They're the people right near you. I'm going to tell you about Annette. Annette's from England. I met her last March. She moved to Athens, Greece, and this is what she does during the day. She teaches in a, in a private school there. 
She does that during the day. She's single. She's in her late 20s. And at night, from 10.30 until 4.30, four nights a week, she goes and she makes tea and bakes cookies and then goes and walks. And I walk down this street with her. There's one strip in Athens, Greece, where all these Nigerian prostitutes ply their trade. What these women have done is uh, Athens, Greece is a funnel point for sexual trafficking from uh, Africa into Europe and America. What happens is these men go down into Nigeria and they make these promises to these women. They say, we have a nanny job for you in England. It pays 60,000 pounds a year, 50,000 pounds a year, something like that. Come with us. You'll be able to provide for your family. You can send your money back. They come, and they come into Athens, and these men get them hooked on drugs, and when they get hooked on drugs, they build up debt, and they say, all right, you know, for you to get to London, you're going to have to pay me $10,000, 15,000 euros, 20,000 euros, whatever it is. Then they start getting them hooked on drugs, and their debt increases to where what these women are done is they're enslaved now, and they're working off their debt through prostitution. Nobody knows who Annette is. She's been doing this for 10 years, four nights a week, walking down this road, giving these women tea and crackers, The men who supervise these women hate Annette, so she has to be very discreet about it. And in different ways and at different times, on a few occasions, she's allowed to tell these women, if you want to get out, I have the means to help you. That's all she does. Four nights a week for two years. Twice in two years, women have said, will you help me? And she's helped two women out. Listen, Annette's not going to blow anybody's doors off at a missions conference. She's anonymous. She's small. She's fatigued. Nobody knows about what she's doing. But she's doing it because she knows the love of her king and it's a delight. It's not big. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy. Nobody knows about it. But there's delight in her eyes when she does it. And she doesn't get much results. That's sweet service to the king. She's so happy in Jesus. The joy of service is not the big impact you have. It's in the delight that knowing our names are written in heaven. Second point, last point. The joy of service is also not in the vocation that you choose. It's, in, it's also it's in knowing the love of the one you serve. Because here's what you are this week. You're thinking about servant leadership. And at the same time, you're learning about who you are, your personality, your gifting, your interests, your talents, and all that kind of stuff. And you're wondering, how do I put this together and what do I make of myself? Right? What, where are my career goals? Where are my academic goals? Where are my social goals? And you have these dreams of who you want to be in different fields that you're interested and gifted in. And what you're struggling with, and, and rightly so in struggle, continue to struggle, is do I need to continue in this area, down this path, aiming for this career goal, this academic goal? Or do I need to turn this direction? And what I want you to hear is the joy of service it's actually, in a lot of ways, it's really not in the vocation you serve. It's not in whether or not you're a campus minister or a pastor or a counselor or a grocer or an insurance salesman or teacher. The joy of service is in the knowledge of Jesus. The knowledge that our names are written in heaven. It's not what you choose to do so much as it is who you choose to do it for. The difference between seeing, and this is the difference 
The difference is between seeing your vocation as the end. When I'm talking about giving up your dreams, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about giving up your dreams of when I can use my vocation to finally make me happy. That's the dream we've got to give up on. I, if I achieve this area, if I achieve in this area, that's what's going to make me happy. If I can pursue this vocation and get there, that's what's going to make me happy. That's the dream we've got to give up on. And then think, I'm going to pursue this vocation and serve the Lord with it. Instead of using your vocation for your happiness, using it for service. Because the joy of service is not actually in what you do, whether you're a campus minister or doctor. The joy is in who you serve. You, may, you might be thinking, I've got to change kind of the career path I'm aiming for, everything I want to do with my life. I don't know what to do anymore. It's not whether or not you're a counselor or a teacher. It's about who you serve when you counsel or when you teach. And, and this is a real brief lesson. In Genesis one twenty eight, Jesus creates man. The first commands that God gives man are very interesting. One of them we're not going to talk about, which you, but you'll wish I'd talked about them. The second we're going to talk about. He says, fill the earth and multiply, subdue and have dominion. Now, y'all want me to talk about fill the earth and, self, and multiply because literally what Jesus said, what God's saying in his first command to man is, y'all need to have a lot of sex and have a lot of babies. God's first words is man. That's blowing my mind. It should blow yours, but we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> His second command, I just lost everybody. Everybody's gone now. (laughs) Fill the earth and multiply, subdue and have dominion over it. What God made man for is to be creative with the creation, to craft things, to make things, to explore it, to understand it. That's what, if the fall had never happened, that's all we'd be doing. That's what he made us for. That's why you're drawn to the different fields, is that is God's image in you, saying, I want to be creative, and I want to explore, I want to produce things, I want to be a part of this human civilization making things. That is what God has called you to do. Think about, in in some ways, think about this. I don't want my daughters just to behave. It's not, oh, yes, I want them to behave. I want them to behave, but I want them to be, I want them to draw. I want them to learn I want them to sing. I want them to dance. I want them to create. God doesn't just want you to behave. Y'all, he wants you to do amazing things. He wants you to explore the cosmos. He wants you to make bridges. He wants you to nurse people back to health. He wants you to educate children. He wants you to sell life insurance. That's what he made us for. It's not about whether or not you sell life insurance or you're a missionary in Kenya. It's about who you do it for. It's not about what you do near as much as about who you do it for. I'm, I want to tell you about Reed. He's one of my best friends. And, and we're getting here towards the end because I know everybody's tired. Uh, Reed's a cardiologist in Jackson, Mississippi. He went to Mayo Clinic and was trained there, which is an elite uh, medical training clinic. He's brilliant. He works at one of the top cardiology clinics in the southeast. And you need to... Uh, I'll try to explain this about the medical field really briefly, but you need to know, and, and, and some of you do, I'm sure most of you adults, the medical field has a, is, is just an ethical minefield. There's just a lot of gray in being in medicine, a lot of ethical gray. Uh, Reed always talks to me about the pharmaceutical companies and how they incentivize doctors. They come in, uh, the government's trying to regulate this, but it's still a nightmare, and, and Pfizer is taking doctors on trips, 
offering all these kind of incentives for pushing Pfizer products. And what that means is doctors get cool stuff from Pfizer if they'll give you Pfizer drugs, which means the doctor's not looking out for you. A lot of doctors aren't, not casting, but a lot of doctors really struggle with this of like, I can get a lot of stuff from Pfizer. This isn't necessarily the best treatment, but it's close. I'm going to give them this. Reed doesn't take anything. And it's costly. He's the only doctor in his clinic who doesn't do that. You need to know something else about the medical field. In insurance, there's a, there's a strong temptation, and Reed says the majority of doctors do this, where if you have really good insurance, there's an incentive for the doctor to give you more tests than you need because it won't cost you very much, and they get a huge payment from the insurance company. So you might have an ailment, and, and maybe there's this random strange disease that you probably don't have that costs $300 to run, and it's going to cost you a $10 copay. Well, they're like, I can charge the patient $10 and not feel guilty about it, and I get 300 bucks from the insurance company. Reed brings in less money in his clinic than any other doctor because he doesn't do any superfluous tests just to pocket to line his own pockets. It costs him. He makes less money. The other doctors are frustrated with him because he doesn't bring in as much money because he won't run all the extra tests. Here's what else. You see a lot of death in cardiology. It's a tough practice to be in. And he sees a lot of patients die, and Reed has a tender heart. He loves Jesus, and he has a tender heart. He hates to see pain. And so Reed, he crosses over that line a little bit in the medical field because he longs to comfort those families and be with them. And so he goes into these nightmares with these families, sometimes a day or two at a time, sometimes for weeks and sometimes in months. And they're waking him up at all hours of the night. He's leaving his house at 3 o'clock in the morning, and he's walking through heart attacks with patients and their families. And he's counseling them, and he's loving on them. You know what Reed's in the middle of right now? He's in the middle of getting sued by one of the patients he loved on because a lawyer came to their family and said, I think we can get money from this guy. I think Reed understands a little bit more about Jesus than we do, about how Jesus felt. And you know what Reed's going to do tomorrow? He's going to love on his patients again. Here's what else Reed does. He's a deacon in the church. He serves faithfully. He's there whenever they need him for anything. Here's what else Reed does. He and his wife cook dinner once a month for 200 REF students at Jackson State and go to REF at Jackson State and bring them dinner. Reed teaches Sunday school. That's beautiful service to the king. He didn't go to Kenya. He didn't knock on the doors on the street and do evangelism. He's a cardiologist with integrity and love for his patients, and it's costing him dearly. And he serves faithfully in the church, and he loves his children. That's beautiful service to the king. It's not about whether you're a cardiologist or a missionary. It's about who you are as a cardiologist or a missionary. It's really about who you serve as a cardiologist or missionary. Because I also know, and you probably read in the headlines, about ministers who've made their ministry about them. About creating a following and a fan base and feeding their ego. And it's disgusting. See, it's not about whether or not you're a minister or a cardiologist. It's about who you do it for. It's not about the vocation you choose. It's about who you enter into your vocation for. The delight of service, and it's a paradox. The delight of service... You suffering for others, trying to be the hands and the feet of Jesus for other people, while it's hard and while it's even fearful, the delight, there's delight that comes at the same time, and the delight 
is in knowing that you're doing service to the king and knowing that he has written your name in the book of heaven. Oh, we sang that song, Jesus, I my cross have taken. And here are the lyrics. We sang twice this week, the sermon I preached on Sunday night. I didn't tell you all anything more than what we've sung thus far. Here's that first verse, the latter half of it. Perish every fond ambition. What does that sound like? Giving up on your dreams. All the things that I've sought, hoped, or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. That, that guy preached my sermon for me. Yet how rich is my condition when I give up my dreams. Because God and heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come into my life, disaster, scorn, and pain. In your service, pain is pleasure. And with your favor, loss is gain. Y'all have been singing everything I'm saying to, to each other and to yourselves all week. I haven't said anything we haven't sung yet. Uh, I, 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 the last comment I want to make is actually just reiterate what Ryan said last night. He taught us about Peter sinking in the water and what saved Peter. He was sinking, and what we're prone to think is, what Peter needs to do, and this is Ryan's point, what Peter needs to do is, he needs to focus harder on Jesus. But when you read the text, that's not what happens. Peter, the only contribution he makes to getting saved is crying out. The way he's saved is it says, Jesus came and took hold of him. Jesus came and took hold of him. It's Jesus' love for us that is the power and has the joy to set us free, to die to all of our fond ambitions and go and serve as a cardiologist, as a missionary, as a grocer, as an insurance salesman, as an architect, as a teacher, as a mom, as a housewife. And serve with joy because we know Jesus. The best part of Sunday morning this past Sunday morning, and, and Lord willing, many Sunday mornings, is that portion in the service that's confession and assurance. And maybe it feels rote or repetitive to you when we confess our sin and ensure and, and do assurance. But um, what's happening in that confession and assurance is we're doing it every week for a reason, or at least our church does, is so that I can come back again after a week in which I wasn't the person who I know I should have been and tried to be but still failed to be, and I can say, Jesus... I'm still not that person I should have been. And he takes hold of me. And he says, I still have you. I still have you. I still have you. And we need that every week. That's nourishing and, and, and pressing down deep into our souls. Jesus is saying, your name's written in heaven. Your name's written in heaven. Your name's written in heaven. That makes joy. That makes service joyful. It gives us the confidence to go and do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our names are written in heaven and they're written in permanent ink. They're carved in the stone. They're carved in your flesh. I pray that you would press deeply into our hearts the security that we have in you so that we can go out into the places we live among the neighbors you've pressed around us and into the vocations you've called us to and we can serve with joy because you've taken hold of us and you don't let go. In your name we pray. Amen.